You are listening to Veterinary Mental Health, Turning the Stethoscope Around, Episode 22, presented by Thoughtful Life Counseling. Welcome to the podcast. I am Taylor Miller, a veterinarian and a licensed professional counseling intern. Mental health and work-life balance are critical issues for veterinary professionals. While not intended as a substitute for individual counseling, this podcast seeks to address many of the mental health concerns common to members of our profession. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be back to podcasting. I apologize for the unannounced interruption in our time together. The holiday season absolutely got away from me. In addition to the usual shenanigans around Christmas and Thanksgiving, my family also has five different birthdays to celebrate, and several of those are child birthdays, so you know how how much time those can consume. Anyway, in future years, I expect I will take the months of November and December off intentionally, but as it will be planned, you will have warning. I do want to thank everyone who joined me during my first season for putting up with its various and sundry growing pains. It has certainly been a wild ride on my end. Before we dive into our much-delayed negativity bias topic, I wanted to do some minor housekeeping and also to celebrate the fact that we made it to season two. In season one, I managed to produce 21 episodes, which received over a thousand downloads. To be honest, I have no idea how this rates in the world of podcasting, but I am choosing to be thrilled, particularly because starting this podcast was a spontaneous decision that arose from being locked away during COVID. This year, my goal is to double the number of podcasts I produce to 42. My aim is to present you with topics that will contribute to your understanding of your own mental landscape in a way that can hopefully help you take charge of your mental health and your mental well-being and invest in your mental health and in mental well-being. That's truly my goal is to see more veterinary professionals utilize the information that is available to improve their quality of life because we spend so much time taking care of the quality of life, both of our clients as well as our patients, that we definitely deserve to turn that energy and investment inward as well. The better care we take of ourselves, the better positioned we will be to offer care to everyone else, our family and friends, our colleagues, in addition to our clients and patients. The better we are, the better they can be. So it's worth it. And I hope that self-care goals or strategies are on your New Year's list. They certainly are on mine. In addition, I want to expand the ways in which I can contribute to your mental health. So obviously, this podcast is a prime way that I'm hoping to get information out there, but I'm also planning on doing some live streaming events. I don't have details yet, so stay tuned. I will also be getting information out about those live streaming opportunities via my social media platforms, which I know have been utterly dead for multiple months, but... It's a new year and I have big plans and lots of energy, so I invite you to stay tuned via social media or through listening to podcasts and I will keep you updated on those live streaming opportunities, as well as several other projects I'm working to put together, including coaching groups. So taking some of these wellness topics and using them in small group format to specifically address how they might be utilized in your life to better your mental well-being. 
And just as a note for those individuals who are residents of either Oregon or Washington, I am currently licensed in Oregon for individual mental health counseling. So if you have more specific concerns that you feel would be better addressed on a one-to-one basis, I am available in Washington residents. I am currently pursuing licensure, but I hesitate to offer a timeline, so stay tuned. Finally, for anyone who has found this podcast useful or informative, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate and review me on your podcast platform. The more stars and reviews that I have, the more attractive I will be to someone who might be able to benefit from the material that I'm producing. So I would greatly appreciate that. And of course, if you have any feedback directly or topic requests, send those to me via my email, on my social media platforms, whatever way you'd like to get a hold of me. I would love to have feedback to know how I can better serve you. So without further ado, let's dive into the negativity bias. We have lots to cover as per usual. Also, as per usual, as I was going into the negativity bias from a research perspective, I had a fairly specific idea of what I was going to be covering. Of course, as I began my research, I realized that what I thought I would be talking about is not at all what I would be talking about. So let me lead you on the same journey of discovery that I went on. And as a quick side note, whenever I mention the research that I'm doing, typically what I'm referring to are research articles that I've accessed through the U.S. National Library of Medicine. I also use the counseling textbooks that I had access to during my education articles written in counseling or psychology magazines or for mental health educational bodies or institutions. Occasionally, I will draw from blog posts or other non-scientific sources, but that is usually to add flavor, context, or the tips and tricks portion rather than laying the topic's groundwork. There are certainly some topics that I am speaking more from a personal opinion standpoint. I hope those will be evident as they come up. But for the most part, I am trying to keep myself within the evidence-based world. That's my side note, reeling us back in. So when I began to think about the negativity bias or what a negativity bias was, in my head, I had what I expect is the colloquial definition of seeing the negative aspect of things as opposed to the positive. So almost a glass half full, glass half empty type of concept and our tendency to lean towards a negative interpretation of the events around us. So that's how I went into this. As I began looking up the negativity bias, I realized that what we think of in broad terms as a negativity bias can really fall into three categories. So cognitive biases or patterns of thinking, which can be learned. And while equally important to mental health, this is a category we will save for later. The next category is dispositional negativity, which is an individual temperament aspect. And so that's your optimist, your pessimist, those tendencies that we have that truly have been present for most of our lives. That we will set aside as well, which leaves us with the literature's definition of negativity bias, namely our tendency to interpret ambiguous information as negative versus positive, specifically as it applies to facial expressions, tone of voice, so that affective information, the emotional information that we glean from our environment. So let's think about how this definition of negativity bias impacts our mental health. 
The first example that came to mind for me is that moment right after you have provided a client with a treatment plan or an estimate, whatever your clinic calls them. And negativity bias means that their look of surprise, which is a neutral expression in the sense that surprise can be both good or bad. So that look of surprise that your client gets, we tend to interpret as negative as opposed to positive. And to be fair, learned experience more often than not surprise is negative when someone is looking at a dollar figure. I do want to share one of my favorite veterinary experiences, however. This was back in my first couple of years of practice, and I had had a very stressful day. It was not okay. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon, and a blocked cat came in. So your typical, your typical day of work. And I put together an estimate that had blood work and rads on it. This cat was not doing so hot. It was, it was pretty unhappy. And so I took this estimate in and I handed it to this woman. She took one look at that estimate and she burst into tears. I'm talking tears flooding down her cheeks. And I am just crumpling inside because I know I'm going to be euthanizing this cat. I'm going to be frantically trying to rehome this cat. My evening has just been completely ruined. And then she hugs me and she says, oh, honey, I thought it was going to be at least five times this much. Do everything. Go, go. I don't even need to read it. Go. And my day just blossomed. She was so relieved that it wasn't $10,000 that she gleefully let me go about my work. So not only was I able to do a really thorough workup on this cat, which was wonderful, but I got to do it knowing that the owner was just thrilled with the price, which we very rarely get to experience. But that is a very potent example of our negativity bias. Well, I suppose bursting into tears isn't exactly a neutral emotion, but as we know, tears can be indicative of both positive and negative emotions. Anyway, pulling me back. So surprise is one of the classic ambiguous expressions. Another facial expression that is often open for interpretation is confusion, and this is one that we need to pay particular attention to. So a negative interpretation of a look of confusion might be skepticism. They don't believe us. They are doubting us. When truly it may just be a neutral confusion. I have no idea what you just said and I'm at a loss, which is not necessarily good, not necessarily bad. It depends on what happens next that will shift it into the good or bad category. So if we have a tendency to interpret neutral or ambiguous facial expressions in an exam room as negative, then we are more likely to respond negatively or with negative overtones, which will then push a room that was neutral into an interaction that feels more negative. It's important to recognize the opportunities for negativity bias that exist because we may create a self-fulfilling prophecy if we react to what we think we're seeing. The other thing to think about is that our clients are just as susceptible to a negativity bias as we are. So think about how often you try to present information as neutrally as you can, as professionally as you can. So we try to be non-judgmental and we present things with more of a flat affect, a neutral affect. Food choices. Let me tell you why grain-free is not necessarily ideal. We say this with a neutral face. Yes, your dog is overweight. Let's talk about that. Yes, your cat does have fleas. I know it's frustrating to apply medication once a month, but really it's what we need to do. So we use our professional voices, our professional faces. We have this neutral aspect that is meant to protect us from accusations by the client that we are being judgmental. 
However, if they are very stressed, they will interpret our neutral facial expressions as negative, as judgmental, as condescending. So they will leave that appointment feeling as though these things occurred when we know our expression was neutral. We thought our expression was neutral. And that's where some of these miscommunications happen. Or they will assume we're being condescending based on our facial expression, and they will respond as if we were, which will have the same result as us responding to them. We end up with a negative room when there weren't any actual reasons for it to go that way. So what is happening in our brain that results in this negativity bias? Do you remember our friend, the amygdala? To review, the amygdala is a brain structure responsible for threat assessment, as well as for attaching emotional context to sensory information. And it has the ability to initiate a fight or flight or a stress response. So when a negativity bias is present, the amygdala will assess and respond to neutral stimuli as if it were negative or threatening, and the body will respond accordingly and amp up your stress or amp up your fight-flight response. So what typically prevents this from happening or what counterbalances this effect? If you remember back, our prefrontal cortex or the rational powerhouse is given the same information provided to the amygdala, though it processes it more slowly. And it utilizes logic. We can give things a deliberate benefit of the doubt or suspend judgment voluntarily. So it's our rational brain. And these functions allow for the possibility that neutral or ambiguous facial expressions, tone of voice are just that. They're neutral or ambiguous. Or else we might allow or let ourselves see how those expressions might be positive. So when we have time to think about things, when we try to think about things, that prefrontal cortex can override the amygdala's knee-jerk response. But when is the amygdala more likely to have the final say? When we're stressed. Yay. And as an added bonus, when we're stressed, not only do we interpret something neutral as negative, we respond more quickly because we haven't let our prefrontal cortex take any time to convince us otherwise. So there you are. You're stressed out by general clinic shenanigans, your amygdala is on high alert, and has asked rather pointedly for the prefrontal cortex to please go take a lunch break, excuse yourself, you are not wanted or needed. In this situation, you are perfectly primed to interpret neutral or ambiguous information as negative which, of course, doesn't help your stress level or the stress level of your clients, which may mean that rooms that started out neutral did truly end up being negative, and we get back to that self-fulfilling prophecy that I was talking about. So how do we combat this? How do we overcome this tendency towards a negativity bias when we're stressed? We have to bring that prefrontal cortex back on board to reappraise the situation that our amygdala has made that split-second decision on. And the process of reappraisal recruits areas of the prefrontal cortex that have been associated with emotional regulation, which makes sense. We are having to regulate the emotional impressions made by our fast-acting amygdala. I want to point out that when you're not stressed, when your prefrontal cortex is online and humming along, and you encounter a neutral or an ambiguous facial expression, your brain has time to initiate that reappraisal process, and the negativity bias is less likely to show up. 
So this is something that can happen naturally. But if we know that we're going to be stressed, if we know that we are going to be vulnerable to a negativity bias, there are some things that we can do deliberately to try to counteract that. One, we can ask ourselves, is there another way to look at this? Is there a different way to interpret the given information? And this will hopefully jumpstart those processes in your prefrontal cortex that might be able to override your amygdala. And this requires a degree of mindfulness. I know we haven't talked about mindfulness explicitly in a while, but remember that mindfulness allows us to be aware of our own mental landscape and emotional landscape in the moment from a non-judgmental bystander perspective. So that gives us the space to be curious about our own response to a situation and to ask, is this a logical response? Is this a response that takes all of the given information into account? Or is this a knee-jerk response? Is this a response that needs to be reevaluated? And studies do indicate that mindfulness training can improve emotional regulation and decrease amygdala reactivity. So you get control from both sides, you reduce the amygdala's reactivity and you improve the prefrontal cortex's ability to counteract the amygdala. So it's a nice double whammy, a one-two punch. The other thing we can do is work to reduce stress in general, as this will reduce our predisposition for that negativity bias. For stress management, I refer you back to episode 20 of this podcast, although I am sure that it is a topic I will revisit over and over. So I want to spend a little bit more time on the client management side, because as much good as it will do us to recognize a negativity bias in ourselves, I think it's more important to recognize when our clients might be experiencing a negativity bias towards us and how that affects our relationship and their perception of us. This is where some of those reviews come from that say that we were unfeeling or uncaring during moments when what they really needed was compassion. And I know all of you. I know that you are all compassionate people. So compassionate, in fact, that that's probably why you're listening to this podcast. You're probably listening to this podcast because your own mental health has suffered because you expend so much of your energy taking care of others. So I know that this is not an issue, but let's think about it from a client's perspective, a stressed client's perspective, a client who is acting out of their amygdala, who is not bringing their prefrontal cortex on board. I do think it is fair to say that veterinary situations can be very scary and stressful for owners who don't understand what's happening. Not being able to understand something can be very scary, especially when you have to consider finances as well. So we know that they're stressed, especially if their pets are stressed or in pain. The owner is going to be stressed. In the face of client stress, I think we sometimes adopt our professional demeanor for protection. And this is supposed to be our armor. This is supposed to be a shield between us and a client. But if a stressed client is reading it as a negative emotion, judgment, dislike, disinterest, apathy, then it's not helping us and may even lead to misunderstanding or misinterpretation of our intent. And consider also that our nonverbals, which include tone of voice, make up a huge part of our communication. So even if your words are neutral or even slightly upbeat and friendly, if a client reads your nonverbals as negative, they may not be able to remember your words or they may assume that your words are insincere, that you're doing lip service rather than truly believing what you're saying. 
So what can we do to improve our client's ability to read us accurately? The first one is to put them at ease. The lower their stress level, the better able they will be to read our good intentions. And the second one is to allow time for communication. Remember that the prefrontal cortex takes more time to reevaluate information and to overturn the amygdala's snap judgment. And believe me, I absolutely understand that time is of the essence these days. But in a tricky situation, a minute or two of extra time can truly make a difference, particularly if you consider the amount of time needed to repair a situation or to handle a bad review or just the mental energy that will be required to recover from a negative interaction. A minute or two of extra time on the front end can be well worth the investment. And as counterintuitive as it may seem, slowing a conversation down just by a little bit can relax an owner, allow them to read you more accurately. You don't have to repeat yourself as frequently. So even if your schedule is chaotic, maybe especially when your schedule is chaotic, I recommend taking a few extra breaths and a few extra minutes. Slowing a conversation down is going to benefit you on multiple communication levels, emotional levels, client satisfaction levels, patient relaxation levels. It's just worth it. As always, I love feedback and would be interested to hear about the ways in which the material I present on this podcast shows up in your life. It has been ever so delightful to be back, and I look forward to our upcoming topics. I have a whole slew of them planned, including one or two episodes on sleep, which I know I've been threatening to do since I started. So take care, and I will talk to you next week. This has been a mental health moment brought to you by Thoughtful Life Counseling. If you found today's episode helpful, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving me a review. You can access any additional resources mentioned in today's episode by visiting my website at thoughtfullifecounseling.com. To have wellness resources delivered by email, please sign up to receive my twice-monthly newsletter. If you have topic requests, questions, or comments, please contact me through my website or any one of my social media platforms. Take care of yourself and tune in next time for The Imposter Syndrome.